Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And this week I'm joined by uh, two guests on the program. The first of these is Duncan McKinnis, a manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. And the second is Peter Hewitt, manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio, a trust that only invests in other investment trusts. We'll be hearing from both of them shortly. Uh, they are both Scotsmen. And well, I think it's hard to say that uh, the outlook they're giving us is uh, particularly cheerful. In particular, the rougher view on the world is uh, quite dark, I have to warn you. Ruffer Investment Company produced its annual report this week, a must-read, uh, which uh, contains some fairly uh, depressing insights into where we are and where we might be going. Uh, while Peter Hewitt, a veteran like myself of more than one cycle, uh, is looking forward to the point when uh, things get better, uh, but thinks that that may well be next year rather than this year. In the meantime, we've seen the FTSE All-Share Index make something of a recovery this week, though it's been patchy, had a very good day on Tuesday and finished the week up around 2%, which is uh, an improvement, obviously, on where we were. But the picture from the gilts market was not so positive. Bond yields have gone up again, started to edge up again this week after the extraordinary events of last week. And uh, we're now looking at 10-year gilts in offering yields in excess of 4%. And of course, meanwhile, there's a lot of concern about what is happening to mortgage rates. A lot of mortgage products have been taken off the market and there have been what I imagine will be something approaching crisis talks between the Chancellor uh, and the big banks about what to do about the mortgage market where many house owners face uh, potentially very large increases in mortgages unless something can be done to uh, stem the rot. And that is a concern that has often hung over the UK economy and looks like becoming another potential crisis for this winter when we're already facing claims that we will possibly have power cuts because of energy shortages unless something happens in the short or medium term to alleviate the pressure from higher energy prices. The good news on that front a couple of weeks ago has rather dissipated with the announcement that OPEC is going to cut production And that sent oil prices up again this week. So I'm afraid plenty to worry about as so often this year. I'm putting the final touches to the Investment Trust Handbook, the annual publication I produce to uh, summarise the year's events. And, uh, well, there is quite a lot of reading to work through, I have to say. But uh, we're all looking forward, not looking back. And uh, there are some positives out there. But uh, the overall climate is... I fear, still quite dark. Later on, I will be talking about some of the results that have come out this week. Again, really briefly, there will be a full summary on the Moneymakers website. uh, That will be for subscribers to the Moneymakers circle uh, behind our, what I may be allowed to say so, our very modest paywall, uh, where for £2 a week you can get access to uh, not only the latest weekly data on investment trust movements, prices, NAVs and discounts, uh, but also a summary of forthcoming dividends, one of our regular in-depth profiles of investment trusts. This week we have a profile of the large infrastructure trust, BBGI Global Infrastructure, as well as some further comments on where we are in the market cycle. 
So do look out for those if you're interested in any of that material. My first port of call this week was, as I mentioned, with Duncan McInnes, the lead manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, which sits in the flexible investment sector and has become an increasingly popular destination for investors looking to shelter from the turmoil that we've been seeing in equity and bond markets. The Ruffer ambition is to deliver an absolute return in all market conditions. Uh, its benchmark is to produce a positive total annual return after all expenses at least twice the Bank of England bank rate. Well, that's not been too difficult recently, uh, with bank rate being held so low near zero. But uh, more recently, of course, that uh, target will become more challenging as the Bank of England continues to increase its core interest rate. The Ruffer Investment Company has delivered on its uh, ambition through both of the last bear markets. It performed very well in the internet bubble in 2000 and again during the global financial crisis. And over its uh, the course of its time as a listed investment trust, uh, it has delivered an annualised total return of around 7% per annum. So that's less than some of its more riskier alternatives, but it has preserved capital, which is its uh, primary objective, and delivered a return which is positive through almost all market conditions. In the last 12 months, it has produced an annualised total return of 6.3%, and this week published its annual report with a quite alarming commentary on the state of the world as we enter what the people at Ruffer believe is a new investment regime, one that is going to be much more difficult for investors to navigate than the experience we've had since the global financial crisis. Duncan, you've just produced your annual report, which as always is full of very interesting thoughts about where we are. Perhaps I can just kick off by putting to you this question. I mean, it's hard to find much of great comfort in what you've uh, written in the annual report this year. We've had a very bad year so far. Stock markets are down, particularly uh, global stock markets. Bond yields have been rising very sharply. We've got higher inflation. We've got central banks on a, on a mission to tame it with higher interest rates. We've got the war in Ukraine and so on. We've seen very bad markets this year. But uh, I think it's fair to say you're not convinced that it's over yet. Uh, yeah, that would be fair to summarise. We've been talking about this idea of a regime change in markets and regimes by their nature are you know, sort of secular. You're talking potentially decades here. So the, the old regime, the regime that we left, was known as the Great Moderation. Uh, and that sort of lasted from 1982 to 2020. And how would we define that? And maybe you'll um, agree or disagree on parts of this, but... That, that period was uh, all about interest rates and inflation falling from very high levels in the early 80s down to 5,000-year lows <laughs> in, in COVID. Uh, that provided this enormous tailwind for asset prices and for increasing financialization of the economy. You had another tailwind of globalization as a driver of cheap energy, cheap goods, cheap labor. And then lastly, the political environment was actually pretty favourable to pro-capitalist policies under Thatcher and Reagan, then Blair and Clinton, and then uh, Donald Trump too. So that, that sort of that for me summarises the old regime. 
And now we think we're in a new regime. <laughs> so I can tell you about that, or maybe you can agree or disagree on, on bits of that. Well, I have to say personally, as I think uh, followers of what I've been writing in the last uh, year or so will know that I'm afraid I do rather agree with you. Nothing, of course, is ever certain in the world of uh, financial markets. That we do know. And we also know that they're very cyclical. Uh, but essentially, what you're saying, I think, is that we are facing a period where we are going to go into, uh, well, is it going to be a long winter? I mean, what are going to be the characteristics of this new regime, assuming that we are, as you say, going into this particular new phase? I think it's the reverse of all the things that I just mentioned. So interest rates and inflation have started to go up, as we know, and that's that's kryptonite for asset prices. Globalization is becoming deglobalization. And that's not just because of Russia, Ukraine, because before that you had Cold War II between China and the US. And because of COVID, you had global corporates starting to reconsider their global supply chains and reshoring and bringing manufacturing and so on closer to home. So deglobalization was a trend before COVID because of Donald Trump, but after COVID because of supply chain disruptions, because of China. And then, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin has massively accelerated that. And I think politics has turned on investors too. We live in, uh, to quote Russell Napier, who I'm sure you will be very familiar with, uh, an age of emergencies So so we seem to roll from one crisis to another. And what that has done is I think it's allowed the um, Overton window of of debate to be framed by big statists or people on the left. And so we're constantly now talking about windfall taxes, about breaking up monopolies, about taxing the rich. And these are all, uh, rightly or wrongly, you can can agree or disagree with them, but they're not favourable for the owners of capital. So, as you say, there might be reasons why politicians might want to pursue those policies. Uh, Before we move on there, I mean, what you're saying, therefore, by implication is, I think you would agree with me that uh, central banks have been following a policy which, in retrospect, and indeed, uh, as has been warned by people like yourself for many years, has been rather foolish. Uh, They've allowed this easy monetary policy to go on for too long. And now they're struggling to cope with that situation. They're in a very, between a rock and a very hard place, are they not? They, they are, yeah. I made a, a sort of joke in the annual report about catch-up inflation because for the last decade they wanted to create inflation. They, they were trying to create inflation with many of their policies, zero interest rates and quantitative easing and so on. Um, and then they got way too much inflation all at once. So it's a little bit like sort of slapping on a glass bottle of tomato ketchup uh, when you want some and then you don't get any, you don't get any, and then on the fifth slap you get way too much and you drench your chips in tomato ketchup. <laughs> So I think that's the environment that we're in. But we're often characterized as people who um, are investing for inflation. But there's a very important distinction between inflation and inflation volatility. And what we really expect is this idea of inflation volatility. We don't think we'll see higher inflation forever. We've had this catch-up inflation. uh, But what we expect to see going forward is much choppier inflation. So Average inflation will be much higher, perhaps even double what it was in the last decade. But that won't be a sort of straight line of 5 or 6% inflation every year. It will be periods of 8 to 10% inflation and then lurches towards deflation. So that's going to be a very tricky period for everybody to navigate, including politicians and central banks. But before we go on to talk about that, I mean, if we look in the short term, obviously, uh, there are a lot of people out there who think that, for example, the Federal Reserve is going to pivot, is going to change tack, it won't be able to push through the kind of interest rates it needs to get higher inflation. 
Or alternatively, you could argue, well, maybe the Ukraine situation will change in some way. There might be a, at some point a negotiation, a settlement in some way, though it's hard to see what that might be. But you're saying that even if those things happen, uh, that's not going to make life easier for investors in financial assets in particular. I think you have, with Ukraine and with the chances of a Fed pause or pivot, you have probably nailed the two most likely events that would cause us to reflect and to maybe change our view. Now, we do have a very strong conviction at the moment that markets face significant what we call liquidation risk in the coming six months. But what could happen to make that wrong? Ukraine is a silver bullet because it would... A ceasefire or a solution there would ease commodity pressures and therefore inflation pressures. It would presumably reduce the geopolitical risk premium, which is likely in some markets. However, I would contend it doesn't necessarily mean we're back to business as usual or solve the long-term problems, which you alluded to, because I think Russia has shown their hands now. They've shown their strategic ambitions, and I think they've become a semi-permanent global pariah, you know, until Vladimir Putin exit stage in whatever way that happens. Because I always think, imagine you're sitting in the Microsoft boardroom and they say, right, who's going back to the Moscow office? <laughs> you know, nobody wants to do that anymore. And I think even if CEOs want to want to push back into Russia, if the sanctions are lifted, I think customers and staff will probably self-sanction. And I just don't think that easy reintegration is possible in, in reality. Now, thinking about the Fed pause or pivot, for me, that is the bigger risk to our view. Clearly, if central banks returned to rate cuts and quantitative easing tomorrow, that is a different world. That, that is a different world from the world that we're in right now, and we would have to reappraise things. But they are being extremely specific in their public comments on the fact that they will not do that. Jerome Powell is, for the moment trying to do an impression of Paul Volcker. And I am as surprised as anyone <laughs> by the seriousness with which he is going about that. But they, the Fed do seem to be playing a bigger game here. They're concerned about long-term institutional credibility and institutional independence. And I just don't think it's reasonable for them to pause the rate hikes and quantitative tightening uh, until either inflation is meaningfully lower, unemployment is considerably higher, or financial markets are exhibiting much more stress. And just, just as a final point to emphasise how different current central bank rhetoric is to everything that I've experienced in my career and those careers that are longer than mine, <laughs> like your own. Um, I've, I've never heard central banks talk about recessions as the base case, like the Bank of England have, like the ECB have, like the Fed have sort of almost acknowledged the Fed are actively talking about raising, you're trying to get the unemployment rate up. They're talking about an objective of putting millions of Americans out of work. That is almost unpatriotic, <laughs> but that's what they're doing. That's the scale of the change of opinion that we've seen from, from these central bankers. And, and they're doing it ultimately because they believe it's for the greater good. But I do not think we should underestimate for the moment how serious they are about doing it. Yes, I mean, I guess their argument would be that Higher inflation damages almost everybody, whereas, to be brutal about it, if a few more people become unemployed, that's, they that's, are that's affected. Exactly but right. basically, this is a general 
game rather than a, a specific game from yeah, an origin. I think that that's exactly. I think it was Danny Blanchflower said something who was the who used to be on the Bank of England board and, and is now an academic. Um, I think he said exactly that. From their perspective, the unemployment rate going up by one percent makes life uncomfortable for four, five, six million Americans. You know, the people who are, lose their jobs and their families. But inflation is a problem for three hundred and fifty million Americans. So when you think about it, almost like a colony of ants, you know, <laughs> sacrificing a few for the greater good, then it makes some sort of twisted logic. But of course, you know, these are people's lives that we're talking about here, so it's not pleasant. Do you think, therefore, that the independence of central banks may be in jeopardy because there will be a political kickback against the kind of, if they carry on too long with their policy, or at least in public opinion terms, there's a risk, surely, that they will be seen to be damaging the Commonwealth or whatever you like to call the country they're, they're running. Do you think that's a, a serious risk in these conditions? Absolutely, yeah. Ultimately, I would expect a blurring of the lines between monetary and fiscal policy. And we've started to see that in the last couple of years and a creep towards state-directed capitalism. And we've definitely seen that. And part of this is central bank independence. So we're seeing this reaction function change in, in real time. One of the, the drivers of this idea of inflation volatility that we talk about is that every single time there is a crisis, and there is always a crisis because we live in this age of emergencies, you get this big monetary and fiscal policy response to it. And two recent examples of that would be the energy or cost of living crisis being whack-a-mold by the Truss Energy Plan or the gilt pension market crisis last week being whack-a-mold by the Bank of England stepping in with either being a market maker of last resort or emergency QE, depending on how you want to spin it. But I think, yes, central bank independence is massively in jeopardy. Uh, if you think that Quasi Karteng is having a weekly meeting with Andrew Bailey at 11 Downing Street to discuss the inflation crisis, you know, that, that reminds me of the old story of, I think it was President Lyndon Johnson holding uh, William McChesney Martin against the wall <laughs> and telling him to cut rates you know, back in the, in the 1960s. So um, I think that there's three big banners here that I think of when I think about this state-directed capitalism and overt financing of government projects. The first one is climate change. The second one is tackling inequality. So things like levelling up, things like the cost of living crisis. And then the third one is containing the geopolitical ambitions of China and now Russia. So that's things like energy independence, reshoring. And if you do things under those three banners, they're basically bipartisan. So you get support from everyone. Very few people think that the UK becoming more energy independent or less reliant on Russian gas is a bad thing. So basically, the spending plans get through fairly easily. Of course, there are consequences, which probably are inflationary, but those are for you know, a later date. So if any of those things you've been talking about happen, then that would tend to uh, argue for the fact that inflation will actually become more embedded, because if central banks pivot, that's going to be, you would think, probably inflationary down the line. If state capitalism, as you say, extends in any way, that's probably going to be inflationary. And I guess a couple of questions immediately arise from that. One is this business about the pension funds in the UK. I think part of your arguments has been that there may well be problems in the financial system as a result of what's happening at the moment. Whichever of these paths we go down, there could well be a kind of blow up in the financial system somewhere. 
We may not know where it is, but it's going to show up somewhere, which is kind of consistent with this idea that the Fed will go on raising interest rates until something cracks in the system. Is that your belief? Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, yeah, so we have this slide which says exactly that. You know, the Fed will hike until something breaks. And the data suggests that every Fed hiking cycle ends in a market crash, a recession, or both. <laughs> so there's really not been many successful attempts to, to raise interest rates without it ending badly in some way. So that leaves us still pretty, pretty bearish um, at the moment, even though, you know, Markets have suffered and prices are down. Right. So let's come on to that and what investors can do about all this. I mean, that's a fairly kind of gloomy scenario out there. And of course, Ruffer, the Ruffer Investment Company, as well as the other funds that you manage for private clients and, and, and in open-ended funds, have been positioned to deal with exactly the kind of market that we've had um, and will continue to do so, presumably, therefore, until or unless something changes in that picture. Uh, yeah, I would hope so. We're recording this in you know, first week in October to the end of uh, September to the third quarter. We are sort of handily positive year to date, which is a great number uh, relative, you know, given how, how difficult markets have been, given how there has been sort of nowhere to hide effectively in, in conventional assets. And uh, yeah, we continue to be very nervous about uh, asset markets, particularly over the next sort of six months which is basically the point where the rubber really meets the road on, on rate hikes. You know, we're going to see a lot of rate hikes between now and, say, February. Well, let's, let's explain then to the listeners some of the things that you've actually been doing to enable you to produce a, a positive return in a period when, as you say, equities have fallen, bond yields have gone up, therefore bond prices have, have come down both at the same time, rather unusually. Property is now being faced with rising interest rates, which is never good for them, and so on. So tell us, explain how you managed to do that. I mean, you've, I know you've reduced your equity holdings very significantly, the lowest they've been for a long time. Uh, but perhaps you can explain what is in your portfolio that's enabled you to produce a positive return uh, in this period. So conventional assets have struggled, like you just uh, suggested. I, mean, I read the other day that we've had three consecutive quarters of negative stock and negative bond returns you know, simultaneously. It's been a remarkably challenging year for multi-asset portfolios. And so what we've relied upon is what we call our unconventional assets. That came about from back in 2012. We started worrying that low bond yields would ultimately mean that bonds would not protect investors in the next crisis. Effectively, they would be too expensive to be a safe haven. And our work also showed that in a higher inflation environment, when inflation is above about three, stocks and bonds actually move in the same direction, which is contrary to many modern portfolio theory type assumptions. So what we started doing was building out an expertise in derivatives and unconventional assets. And that's been ongoing for a decade or so. It's less than 10% of the portfolio, but it's been the key driver of our good performance in the last couple of years. So in, in the COVID crash, it was call options on the VIX, which is a volatility index, shorts on investment grade bonds. So betting that investment grade bonds would fall and put options on the equity market. So again, derivatives that benefit if the equity market falls. Later in 2020, we used Bitcoin which was quite high profile at the time, certainly unconventional in a capital preservation strategy like ours. And in 2022, uh, this year, the key unconventional protections have been something called pair swaptions. Now, I did these in my CFA exams uh, a decade or so ago, 
and I remember thinking there is no way this will ever be relevant to my life <laughs> but but here they are they've been our saving grace so far this year pair swaptions are the right but not the obligation to enter into a pay fixed receive floating interest rate swap absolute finance gobbledygook uh, but what they really mean is their options that rise in value as bond yields go up and so you, you can hedge interest rate risk and they've been a, a massive contributor to our portfolio return we've also had equity puts again so options that rise in value when the equity market falls and also again positions that benefit from corporate borrowing costs rising corporate spreads widening now we don't do this lightly i would love to get rid of the complexity of derivatives from the portfolio and for the first 15 years of the firm's history we didn't we didn't need them because you could get a balanced all-weather portfolio from just conventional assets and we didn't think that was possible anymore so we've had to use these more complex uh, instruments but we will do whatever we have to do really be as creative as we need to be to fulfill that goal of preserving investors capital basically regardless of what happens in the market or the economy and that has been your selling point well, i'm grateful to you for not leaving me to explain what pairs options are <laughs> quite happy to do that of course but uh, another time okay then give me just a snapshot then of what your portfolio looks like at the moment in terms of the sort of broad asset classes in terms of equities index linked whatever what does it look like in very in very broad terms so it is quite different so you're very familiar with what we do jonathan we have historically run an all-weather portfolio a broad mix of assets we sometimes call it a balance of fear assets and greed assets or a balance of protective and growth assets today we are as defensive as we have ever been in the firm's 27 28 year history so we have our lowest ever weighting to equities just 12 percent but if you include the equity protection that I mentioned, the put options, we're, we're actually slightly net short equities. Uh, we have about 50% of the portfolio in cash or cash-like investments. And then the rest is in a mix of gold and inflation-linked bonds. Uh, and for the first time in a long time, uh, last week, we bought some long-dated conventional bonds. Having been very, very skeptical and bearish on, on long-dated conventional bonds in the last few years. From this current point, because yields have risen so much, uh, I think that there are definitely scenarios where long-dated bonds can work again as a protection. But I think that the, the important thing is really that very big cash weighting. And we also have those unconventional protections that I mentioned too. Um, the very big cash weighting is not a case of us being lazy or a case of us not having good ideas. It's a case of us having arrows in the quiver to deploy opportunistically. So a good example of that would be the complete chaos in the gilts market last week. If there's ever an example of how difficult the investing game is, <laughs> I think index-linked bonds might be it. Inflation has returned. Everyone's worried about inflation. Surely inflation-linked bonds have done well. And the longest-dated inflation-linked bonds, which we hold in our portfolio, I'm afraid to say, are down 70% year-to-date. And last week, they were down 27% on Monday, 24% on Tuesday, 20% on Wednesday morning. And we were buying on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday morning. Then the Bank of England intervened on Wednesday afternoon, or Wednesday at 11.30am, I think it was. They rose 115% on the day, 16% on Thursday, and 34% on Friday. 
So it was a truly remarkable moment. But what that big cash pile in our portfolio allowed us to do was to be buying when that opportunity presented itself. And I think of the sort of uh, the Warren Buffett quote that when it's raining gold, grab a bucket, not a thimble. <laughs> and that's what we were trying to do. We, were, we, had, we had big orders on and one broker said that in the hours before the Bank of England intervened, Ruffer were the only buyer of long UK duration in the world. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that might have been true. So we're using that cash to try and be opportunistic. And what I talked about as being worried about liquidation events in markets in the coming months, it looks like that. It looks like very, very sharp falls um, that seem almost unreasonable and irrational that are brief. But if you've got cash on hand, you can take advantage of them. But you need to move quickly because that opportunity was there, not not for weeks, not for days, but for hours. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it, really? When you think about it, we're talking here about government bonds, which are meant in principle to be relatively secure. But because of the low interest rate environment in particular, that makes long-dated bonds in particular incredibly sensitive. They jump up and down like a yo-yo. And of course, this comes on to the point, you know, for ordinary investors, this is a pretty scary environment to be in, right? Because they don't have the expertise and the experience that uh, you guys have. And even if they did, they wouldn't be able to act on this in the same way that you've been able to do. They wouldn't be able to move sharply into the long-dated uh, index link guilt bomb again on a Wednesday knowing that they were going to be up 100% in a day. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and exact, one of the extraordinary things about what's happened so far this year, I think, uh, to me anyway, is the fact that most investors, as far as one can tell from services, they just haven't really changed their behaviour much. There's still a lot of people who think buying the dip is the answer in the equity market. There hasn't been a lot of outflows from a lot of things that you'd think have been going down a lot. Uh, I think you mentioned one example in uh, your annual report, uh, which is the ARK ETF, the famous ARK ETF, which hoovered up so much punter's money, if you like, uh, last year. They've hardly had any redemptions at all, even though they're down 70%. I mean, that's extraordinary. What would you say to private investors other, of course, than, you know, put your money with rougher <laughs> where are the people <laughs> yeah. to trust? But I mean, these are going to be very challenging times for a lot of investors who, um, as you say, have only known a different world. Yeah, I agree with all, all of that. So investors under the age of 60, really, but particularly younger investors have been conditioned to buy the dip. Every dip is an opportunity because every dip is met with a central bank response and then markets recover in a swift and, and steep fashion. But if you look further back in history to older bear markets, you know, pre-2000, look at the 1970s, um, for example, the markets had steep drops and then a prolonged grind lower. You know, the, the pain was felt over multiple years and the bear market ended in capitulation and misery. You know, it was people just stopped looking. <laughs> that's, that's when you knew it was the bottom. So I, I think um, that, yeah, if we have this age of inflation volatility, then we can expect this. Well, the central banks aren't riding to the rescue anytime soon, basically, is, is the key. And I think in terms of what investors can do, we've lived in a decade where the mantra was uh, Tina. There is no alternative. And that, that was a phrase borrowed from Thatcher. But this there is no alternative was because in a zero interest rate world, investors were forced further out the risk curve. People had to move into investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, equities, because they needed a return. You know, savers, uh, retirees, etc. Or, or even if they were institutional, they had return hurdles that they had to hit. So everyone was forced to take risk by zero rates. Now, there is a new Tina. There is now alternatives. Cash will yield 4% by year end. The two to five year treasury or the two to five year gilt pays you more than 4% today. 
Now, that to me, given all of the uncertainty in the world, seems like a nice place to be. Now, fair enough, you can lock in that 4%. It's not very exciting. It's quite hard to get rich earning just 4%. But it's very easy to stay rich earning 4%. But it's it's the ability to take that highly liquid asset, that cash-like asset, and deploy it into those opportunistic situations that, that appear that I think will be what hopefully sets us apart in, in, in the coming years. That ability to, to be in a position of strength and move quickly. That's historically has defined rougher. We, we made money in the dot-com bubble by just avoiding the dot-com stocks and by owning old economy stocks. But in 2008, we were in the right place because we were in the yen and the Swiss franc and conventional government bonds coming into the crisis. But in early 2009, we turned around and we bought equities. So you were going from a position of strength into equities when they were on their knees. Similarly, in the COVID crash, we preserved capital through the crisis. We were flat. The market was down 20 odd percent. And then in March and April 2020, we were buying gold equities and we were buying long dated tips because these were points of serious distress. So that's the playbook. We just hope that we can sort of run the play. (laughs) Well, indeed. And uh, it's a very difficult playbook because you have to do a lot of things that uh, conventional wisdom says that you shouldn't do. In other words, you've got to... uh, you're essentially trying to time some of these markets. And, well, well, it's uh, that's kind a of, tricky thing to do. It's Rudyard Kipling's, if you can keep your head when all around you all around you are losing theirs, um, that, I mean, that's as applicable to investing as it is to anything else. So can I ask you then, finally, um, in what has been a fairly uh, you know, discouraging uh, conversation, I'd have to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> generally speaking. Well, it is what it is. Obviously, most uh, of the people who invest in your trust are sterling investors. Perhaps you could explain what you do in terms of currency hedging and how that plays out and what you think about sterling and the UK at the moment. Oh, a nice, uh, a nice have, easy one to finish. A, <laughs> we have a new prime minister who hasn't got off to the best of starts, I think it's fair to say, with her plans. What do you think about sterling and, and how do you deal with it in the portfolio? Uh, it sort of reminds me of that joke about asking for directions and the person says you wouldn't want to start from here. <laughs> uh, so, so when someone uh, invests in our fund or, or, or gives us money on the, on the private client side or institutional side, we take their pounds and we invest in a global multi-asset portfolio. But with every investment decision that we make, uh, when we're buying, let's just say, uh, some shares of Chesapeake Energy in the US, we're deciding if Chesapeake Energy is an attractive investment Um, but we're buying it in dollars. So the second decision is, do we want to retain that dollar exposure or do we want to hedge it back to sterling? And uh, it's always those those two decisions. We can can hedge out any currency risk that we don't want. And um, right now, we've got about 70% of the portfolio in sterling, which is higher than average over time. Of course, given the performance of sterling this year, we wish we'd had more out of sterling. I think there is an enormous amount of pessimism about the UK in global capital markets. And the UK is small enough that it can be avoided. So if you're an asset allocator sitting in Shanghai or Hong Kong or Los Angeles, you do not need to invest in the UK. (laughs) You look at our catastrophe (laughs) over the last couple of years of of leadership and uh, you just think, um, no, I'll put that in the too hard pile. However... Um, I do think with the combination of you know things like our, our stock market having a significant discount to global valuations and now a very cheap currency, 
eagle-eyed foreign investors have got to be looking at our assets. And I, I've said this for the last couple of years, but I think it's especially true today with the additional leg lower in the pound. So, yeah, I think it's hard to be bullish on the UK, but in many respects, <laughs> that is the strongest case for it. So, you know, the reason to be bullish is that nobody could possibly be bullish. So I, I think it's probably, if you haven't panicked out of the pound by now, it's probably too late you know, that, that old phrase, um, if you're going to panic, panic early. This is not early. <laughs> that then was Duncan McInnes, the lead manager of the Ruffer Investment Company. Lots to think about there. He, we were talking on Friday lunchtime before the release of the latest US jobs figures which showed that unemployment continues to fall in the US. Uh, it was quite a strong number, which uh, on the old market mantra that uh, when good news can be bad news, that merely reinforced the market's fears that the Fed is not going to be pivoting anytime soon. And that prompted in turn a uh, sharp fall in the US stock market, the S&P 500 down 2.8% uh, uh, on the day, NASDAQ down by 3.8% though uh, the US 10-year yield did not move much in response. Uh, but VIX, the volatility measure, did rise, jump as well. So that wasn't a great day. Quickly now to summarise the week's investment trust results. Uh, subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle will find all these on the Moneymaker's website in our new expanded uh, results and data section. Now includes forthcoming dividend dates as well as share price, NAV and discount moves over the week and the year to date. It's been a relatively quiet week for investment company results this week. Apart from Ruffer, we've heard from uh, Fidelity Emerging Markets, some rather shockingly bad figures there following their takeover of Genesis Emerging Markets. Uh, Invesco Perpetual UK smaller companies suffering along with other smaller company investment trusts. Strategic Equity Capital forming around in line, but down. Henderson Eurotrust, European smaller companies, also down predictably over their latest reporting period. Ashoka India Equity, India being one of the few markets that's performed pretty well this year, in marked contrast to China. Uh, we heard from Bailey Gifford China Growth, which is down in line with uh, the index, broadly speaking. Vietnam Holding and Macau Property Opportunities. Amongst other news, we heard that Hypnosis Songs has refinanced its debt and Monks and Independent Investment Trust have published full details of the proposed merger. One other feature to mention is that NB Private Equity has entered into a share buyback agreement with Jefferies International, the broker investment bank, based on multiple factors, including the absolute level of discount, the discount compared with a peer group and broader equity market movements. And a final mention to SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, which said that members of its board and a number of individuals at its investment manager had all bought shares in the trust when they dipped below its latest published NAV. And the shares actually have recovered somewhat, uh, having sold off quite sharply uh, the week before, along with other renewable trusts of various sorts. To talk about what's been happening in the investment trust sector in the last few weeks, I was uh, very happy to be able to catch up again with Peter Hewitt, who is the manager of a very interesting trust. It is now called CT Global Managed Portfolio and has two share classes, 
uh, one a growth share class and the other an income share class. I should perhaps just also explain that, Peter, you've been following investment trusts now for, well, about as long as I have, not quite as long as I have, but we both have grey hair to show for it. But your uh, trust has recently uh, changed hands at the uh, kind of ownership level. So perhaps you just quickly explain what's happened there. You used to be known as the BMO managed Global Managed Portfolio. Now it's the CT Global Managed Portfolio. Perhaps you could just tell us uh, what that's about. Well, that, Jonathan, is because Columbia Thread Needle acquired the European asset management business of the Bank of Montreal. Actually, it was announced almost a year ago, but it's taken some time to get things like names of investment trusts and that changed. So we are now part of, um, or I am now part of Columbia Thread Needle. That was deemed to be slightly too long to put that in the name. So that's been shortened to CT. And it's still global managed portfolio trust. So um, actually nothing under the bonnet has changed at all. Not the manager, company secretary, marketing, none of that. It's just literally the name. So the ticker has also changed, I think, from uh, what it was. Is that right? Sorry, yes. It's now it's changed from BMPG to CMPG for the growth shares and from BMPI to CMPI for the income shares. Indeed. So uh, what's always interesting talking to you, Peter, is the fact that your investment trust does invest essentially only in other investment trusts. So you have a very deep and indeed daily knowledge of what's going on in the investment trust sector. Uh, And I guess we have to start off by saying, well, as we all know, I mean, this has been a What's the opposite of a vintage year for investment trusts? This has been the opposite of of a vintage year for investment trusts. It's been a year in which we've seen uh, both, obviously, share and NAV declines across many sectors and also uh, quite significant widening of discounts. So um, what do you think has been going on? Well, it's uh, it's been driven by equity markets, Jonathan, and almost all of the, you know, the US. The UK has actually been in quite a severe bear market. Although, if you just looked at the FTSE 100, which I think is, I'm going to say it's down 3 or 4% year to date, that gives you a totally misleading impression. The FT250, which is medium-sized companies and most of the growth companies in the UK, that's off 25%. The small cap index is down roughly the same, 25%. The NASDAQ in the US, down 30%. But because the biggest companies in the UK, and there's about 15 or 20 of them, the oil companies, the miners, Unilever, Diageo, the pharmaceutical companies have got lots of business overseas and also have benefited in the case of the oil companies from what's been going on with energy prices. But they've also benefited from the weakness of sterling. And so they've been able to hold the line better. One or two of them have gone up quite a bit, the tobacco companies, for example. And actually, if you looked at sort of what the S&P has given you this year, the Standard & Poor's Composite in the US, you would see that sort of year to date, it's down 7.6%. You say, well, that's not too bad. But actually, sterling's fallen 18%. So really, the Standard & Poor's in dollars was down 25, and the NASDAQ is down 30. And so it's just because of the weakness of sterling, which has helped prop up a bit of the FTSE 100 index, and also returns of overseas indexes, that it's seemed as if it's not been quite as bad as it has been. 
But in actual fact, it's been, and I told you, the 250 in the small cap in the UK are off 25%. And all of that has translated through for investment companies to discounts, which were started off the year, the average discount at about 2%, and now it's about 16 That is quite a significant widening. And also, gearing levels are pretty modest across the sector, but you know, it's enough to make the NAV a little bit worse than some of the indexes. So a combination of all that has meant it has not been a vintage year for invest, certainly equity investment companies. And yes. some of the alternatives have been quite good, the renewables. But even there, the last week or two, with what's been happening with interest rates and bond yields and how the markets received the Chancellor's mini-budget, some of the alternatives really did gap downwards quite sharply, I think unjustifiably, because they're not really sensitive to equity markets, um, you know, NAVs of wind farms and social housing and care homes and this sort of stuff. So actually, it's been quite tough in that respect, and there's not been much kind of going our way. Indeed, there has. I mean, I was trying to think of a time when we've seen such a sharp movement in discounts. I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, we had that very short and sharp sell-off and the discounts widened an awful lot then. But that was all over very quickly. That was over in a month, more or less. Um, and uh, this one has, has been dragging on pretty much all year. It's been a pretty steady decline all year. And we've seen the S&P, as you mentioned, lose money for three quarters in a row. And that's only happened, uh, I think, three times since uh, the 1930s. So these are quite unusual times. Uh, not hard to find culprits, um, but can I ask you, are you one of the gang who think that maybe we're going to see the Federal Reserve change course quite soon and therefore the climate's going to change, interest rates aren't going to go up quite so much as people feared, or maybe the war's going to end? I mean, how, There are some straws one can clutch at, but uh, do you see anything really getting better in the short term? I think, Jonathan, it's so difficult to predict things like interest rates, and it seems like they, they are going to go quite a bit higher in the US, but it's possible that could be wrong. But what I would say is the way I'm looking at things is everything seems to have happened quicker than I think markets and investors have perceived. And so, you know, the declines in markets, the widening of discounts, the movement in yields and interest rates, it's happened quicker. And so, my feeling is it would not surprise me if the peak of inflation, say in Europe and in the US, and similarly the peak in interest rates happened in the first half of next year rather than later next year. And I think that's quite important. I'm not predicting whether it'll be February or May or when, I don't know. But what I do think is that when the market perceives that we are there or thereabouts at the peak, I think you might well see quite a change in sentiment. And it could be we're actually in a mild recession at the time. But markets look 12 months ahead. They will then see, with a lot more confidence, interest rates being a bit lower, inflation probably not a lot lower, but trending lower. And I think that does pave the way for some better performance from equities. I mean, I discussed this last week. I was in London. I was at our AGM, spoke at that, and also did a lot of meetings with managers who manage investment trusts where I've got shareholdings in. Had a really interesting meeting with Neil Herman, who runs Henderson Smaller Companies, very good manager indeed. And um, 
great record long term. His shares are off 40% this year. So it's not been a good year for him. And he was telling me that at the beginning of 2022, the PE of the Henson Smallers portfolio was roughly 18 times. And in the main, profits and earnings have come through so far this year. And the PE of his portfolio at the moment is 11. And that really is quite low for that particular fund. And so the question is, when will it start performing? And I suspect if we reach that point where markets perceive the peak has been that we're there and interest rates are not going up again and inflation is actually going to move sideways and down, then things like the discount on Henderson Smaller Companies or actually a number of investment trusts could start to tighten. That would be the first thing you'll see. And then you probably will start seeing the asset value pushing on. And actually, do remember in the UK, where the overall PE of the UK market is only nine times, we really are quite attractively valued. And so in my own mind, uh, I actually did invest extra into the UK in the first quarter of 2022, and it's been mixed. Those trusts which focus on the FTSE 100, the likes of Merchants and City of London, have done quite well, relatively. That's probably meant to be on sideways. But I also bought, because I believed that mid and small cap UK would do quite well, and they haven't. So the Mercantile Trust, Henderson Smaller Companies, and a whole series of other trusts have, have underperformed sharply. And I do think that that could reverse at some stage next year. So my message would be, don't sell. I think we're too late now, even though the, this particular quarter, I've got no visibility. The markets could still go lurch downwards again. But I do think that this is the time to sort of keep your nerve because I suspect as we move into next year, things will start to look a little better. And as I said, once we get the feeling that things aren't getting worse economically on the macro side of things, it could pave the way for a better performance from markets, particularly the UK market. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, one always has to keep that in mind that uh, we've been through these cycles before and they can get to worse than you expect or they can recover quicker than you expect. But it's always worth hanging on to the idea that because of these very sharp movements and discounts we see, there will be opportunities to buy things at very attractive discounts uh, in due course. And if you're still holding those things, you're faced with a difficult choice whether to, uh, as you say, to hang on or to uh, see it through. Um, if you manage to avoid it so far, that's a different issue, I think. Well, let's just look at some of the things you've been doing and, and maybe relate them a little bit to one or two trusts we've heard from this week as well. Let's start with the uh, the growth portfolio, because that's one where the most uh, damage has been felt, obviously. Growth as a style has gone way out of favour. Scottish mortgage has uh, gone to a big discount and almost given back, well, a lot of the gains that it made, those exceptional gains it made. So what have you been doing in the growth investment portfolio? Uh, I'm looking down the list here. Well, you've got quite a lot of defensive assets in there as well. So you've been, you have been quite cautious there. Well, yes, a, a couple of points, Jonathan. First, actually, Scottish Mortgage, I was looking at that this morning. And yes, it caused damage to my portfolio for the financial year for us, which ended at the end of May. And in the second half of that financial year, it basically went from £15 a share to £8. Since the end of May, it's actually, broadly speaking, moved sideways. 
It's moved down to seven, it's gone up to nine, it's currently somewhere between that just now. But my point is, it's not selling off more. And that's the same as true with Allianz technology, Polar Cap technology, Monks, whole series of trusts of that style. So I find that's interesting. They're not going down. That doesn't mean to say they couldn't in future, but there has been an almighty sell-off there. And again, I think all it needs is for us to get a whiff that interest rates may not be continuing to rise, and you might see a bit of a rebound there. In terms of activity, I've actually not done much over the summer, but I have added to two holdings of quite well-known trusts, broadly speaking for the same reason. And the first one is I've added to shares in Finsbury Growth and Income, which is run by Nick Train. And the reason I did that was because, firstly, a lot of his holdings benefit from a weak sterling. He's got a lot of big companies like Unilever, Diageo, Relics, Heineken, and things like that. And so they, they will have done well. And actually, his performance, he's been one of the best UK trusts in the last two or three months. It's not very long. But remember, he had a period of quite serious underperformance. So the ship has steadied there. But I also thought... Can you think of some businesses which will be more resilient in a downturn, in a recession? And actually, if you think of Diageo selling Johnny Walker whiskey worldwide or Unilever with all their various personal care products and the like, they are likely to be more resilient. They'll be able to get price increases through. They're probably quite good at managing their cost base and they'll benefit from weak sterling. And so actually, I think that one is of interest. And so and it's also selling at a bit of a discount now. And the other one, a long-term holding I added to, was one called Worldwide Healthcare Trust. And the reason I did that was something similar in the sense that healthcare companies, I think, will be more resilient in a recession. I think we will have a recession. I think it might well be a mild one. Could be wrong there. But I do think... Pharmaceutical companies, managed care companies, diagnostic companies, all of these, they will be one of the more, they'll not have the same amount of profits and earnings estimate cuts that you could have in more cyclical businesses or retail or consumer discretionary companies. And funnily enough, both of them have actually been relatively resilient versus the all share in recent months. And that's what I've been looking for. I had these companies anyway. They're now both in the top 10. And um, I'm quite happy with that. And on top of that, John, yes, we've got some of our defensive holdings. They contribute about 15% of the portfolio. And the one that's been doing really well, of course, is the Brevin Howard Macro Fund, BH Macro. And it just acts inversely to markets. As the equity market falls, BH Macro actually doesn't just hold the line, it rises and it's been doing that and it's performed very strongly. And so I'm sticking with that one. It's my second or third biggest holding now. It's performed that well. People have been saying for a number of years about consolidation is going to happen in the investment trust sector and indeed it has. This year we saw the demise of the Scottish Investment Trust. And then another interesting one last year was the uh, decision by the board of Genesis Emerging Markets to uh, transfer the management of that one to uh, Fidelity. And we 
heard some results this week from Fidelity, and of course their timing in getting involved in this trust has been pretty poor. And the results have been, I would say, very, well, disappointing, I suppose, would be the way to describe it. For example, they say that uh, the annual report, 30th of June, NAV was down 27.9% against a much lower change in the MSCI Emerging Market Index, and the discount widened out to 12%. I'm not asking you to comment particularly about Fidelity Emerging Markets, but I'm interested whether you do have any emerging markets in your portfolios now, and what role you see them playing in the current situation. That's an interesting one, because emerging markets has kind of been an area that's not really been in the spotlight at all for some time now. I mean, I used to own Genesis, but sold it a while ago, really for performance reasons. And uh, I think ultimately the board have obviously taken their decision and they've moved the trust to Fidelity, which I don't own that one either. And I think emerging markets is always sort of pregnant with potential, but I think currently the strong dollar it always impacts emerging markets negatively, and it probably has kept a lot of them in check. One trust I own, which actually I had a, a meeting with them just in the last 10 days or so, is the Mobius Investment Trust, which is run by a chap called Carlos Hardenberg. And um, he's a good stock selector. And they focus on mid and small cap emerging markets across the piece. So they don't own Alibaba and Tencent in China or Samsung in Korea. They will own names that you've probably never heard of. But they're quite interesting businesses. And it's actually performed differently from other emerging market trusts and actually quite well over the last few years. And I like the way they you know, approach their stock selection. And they're also quite underweight in China, which has probably helped the cause too. And China, again, is something where you know, there should be lots of potential in China, but for various reasons. And part of it is this zero COVID policy, which seems to be constraining things massively. It's just not come through. So I think I would keep an eye on emerging markets, but I do not feel compelled at the moment to start going out buying more of them. I think once we get calmer, particularly foreign exchange markets, I think that could be the time to once again revisit emerging markets. That was Peter Hewitt, the manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio. If you want to hear the rest of my conversation with Peter, and in particular what he's doing on the income side of his portfolio, then you can find that uh, on the Moneymakers website. Uh, That brings us to the end of this week. It's not been quite as dramatic uh, as the week before in terms of some of the market moves, but uh, there's a lot to ponder in what uh, we've been hearing recently, I would suggest. Uh, look forward to speaking to you again next week when we'll have more guests to discuss what's going on in the markets and in the investment trust sector in particular. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.